welcome to Master the Start, a podcast for young professionals where we interview business experts on how you can master the start of your life and business. What is up, all of our Master the Start listeners? Welcome back. This is season two. We've kind of been on a couple month hiatus. And you know what? This is going to be just as exciting as season one, might even be better. Let me give you a little insight into what we're doing this season. You know, there's been changes. We had goals with season one because we were creating a company called GoMahi.com. You heard us bring it up every once in a while, and it was a crowd solving platform that just didn't quite hit the market properly. So we are moving on and we are focusing on really learning about entrepreneurial journeys and figuring out what makes people ultra successful. So you guys can still learn the tips, the tricks, the traits of the best people in the business. And as I said, season two, and we are gonna start with an absolute awesome guest, Tim Bernan. He's the president and CEO of Opus Group. He's been there since 2010. He's strategically rebuilding, reinvigorating the organization and he is an absolute beast. He was named one of the most admired CEOs in Minneapolis. And on top of that, just to give you a little perspective at how much he knows about real estate and you'll learn more about what Opus exactly is, Tim's actually delivered over 20 million square feet of space. So like, if you're from the Twin Cities, some of our guests are, some of our listeners are, um, there are projects in the Twin Cities like Arbor Lakes, Maple Grove. You'll find Woodbury Lakes and Woodbury, the Best Buy corporate campus. He'll talk about that. That's super exciting to hear how he did it. And a ton, a ton, a ton of other projects. So we are honored to have him on the show today. We can't wait to get season two going. Check us out on all forms of listening, I guess. So Spotify, iHeart, iTunes, all those good things. And we will talk to you after the show. Well, Tim, and for everyone listening, this is our second time doing this because we had some mic problems. So Tim, welcome to the show. I hope you can have the same enthusiasm for my first two questions as you did the first time around. I'll give it my best shot. <laughs> All right, Tim, what do you do? Tell us about Opus and I'll ask you the second question after. Sure. So I'm a native Minnesotan born and raised in the Highland Park neighborhood of St. Paul and Next year will be my 40th year in the commercial real estate development business. So I've been at this a long time and 29 of those years here at Opus. So I've been uh, CEO since 2010 uh, when Opus asked me to come back and help them after the recession. We had to uh, restructure the company and, and kind of reboot it. So um, been having just a, a fantastic time with a great team for the last 10 years turning Opus around. So. Cool. And we've already had a long talk about skiing. Tell me about what you love about skiing. And now I'm curious, now I'm putting you on the spot, but how do you think it transfers over to being a leader of a company or how does it help you be better at your job? I don't know. That's a great question. We were talking about water skiing um, and I just turned 60 in April and it's not all that unusual, but um, you know, guys my age usually aren't still slalom skiing as aggressively as we do early in the morning. Um, but it's for me, it's just a great adrenaline rush, and it's a hell of a workout as well. And I guess for me, when you're skiing at the level I'm skiing at, it keeps your mind sharp. It keeps your senses of what's going on around you razor thin. Because if you're not aware of your surroundings at the speed I'm skiing at um, and the length of the rope I'm skiing at, you know, you're going to, you're going to crash and burn. So I suppose it keeps you sharp as a leader, which is something I think, you know, leaders always have to have to be um, aware of their surroundings and they always need to be ready to make fast decisions and the right decisions. That's, <laughs> so that's no, super no, interesting. Nobody, nobody's <laughs> ever uh, asked that corollary between that board and uh, being a CEO, but I suppose hey, that's I would ask it. That's great. I'm happy I asked because that was a good answer right there. <laughs> so you were recently named a most admired CEO by the Minneapolis St. Paul Business Journal, which is awesome. So congrats on that. Thank you. And, you know, the article explains that 
you're, you're kind of a different leader in the sense where they always say that you have a different focus, you have a different approach and you have like this risk profile. And I'm really curious, like, how do you implement that into a company culture that was 57 years old when you took over? That had to be super hard. Yeah, great question. And, and as I mentioned before, I started my career here at Opus when I was just 25 years old back in 1985. And so I was around the company for a long time when our founder, Jerry Roundhorst, was still very active. And Jerry was really an amazing guy. He passed away a few years ago, but he was also a legend in our industry, in the construction field and the development field. And his culture that he built was really rooted in the core values of respect and integrity. That was something that, you know, meant everything to him in an industry back in the day that maybe didn't have all of those um, core values. So, you know, I learned how to do business kind of the way Jerry Roundhorst set it up. So when I came back as the CEO in 2010, we grabbed onto those core values that were so important to Opus. And then we sort of bolted on additional core values of safety, entrepreneurship, and stewardship. And, and so that foundation of who we were when Jerry started the company was really the foundation that we rebuilt Opus on. So it was, it was easy to grab onto those core values because they meant so much to me as well. As far as you know, leading the company today versus how Jerry led the company, we went through, you know, like a lot of companies, we went through a, a really tough time in the recession. Commercial real estate got hit hard and, you know, a lot of developers basically went out of business. We went through a restructuring. So we went from, you know, being a $2 billion company to, you know, today we're a five to $600 million company, but we survived. And the biggest difference between new Opus and old Opus is the risk profile we're taking today on development deals. And what I mean by that is we'll still do 10 million and $20 million deals on our own balance sheet, meaning we'll put all of our own money in the deal and not take partners, but we're still doing, you know, huge projects like a project we did in downtown Minneapolis, 365 Nick. It's a $150 million apartment project right on Nicollet Mall across from the library. In that case, instead of putting all of our own equity into the deal, we uh, did a joint venture with a partner. And, and so we're doing a lot more joint ventures than we were doing uh, prior to the recession. So we still have real skin in the game, which our partners like and actually demand, but we are doing a lot more joint ventures across the country. So if we used to have a risk profile of nine on a scale of one to 10, with 10 being the highest risk, we're probably at a six or a seven today. So we're still doing all the types of development deals we did before, multifamily, office, industrial, senior housing, student housing. We're still putting skin in the game, but we're not taking as much risk as we did before. So we're not getting as much reward. It's a really good balance. And since I kind of grew up here as a developer, I understand the difference in the two risk profiles. And for me, leading the organization with this risk profile is much more sustainable. Hmm. I, I want to take a quick step back. Give a quick summary, if you can, of essentially what Opus does, you know, and I think, you know, we primarily focus on people that are trying to master the start of their business careers. And that's what makes it so fun talking to people like you that do so many different things. So tell me about Opus, but dummy it down for me. Sure. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, uh, I, I can handle that. So Opus is basically a company that is in the construction and real estate business. And so we are a builder or a contractor. We have 85 construction project managers who work for us that their primary job is to make sure that all the buildings get built the right way. We're also an architectural and engineering firm. So we have 55 architects and engineers who draw and design all of the buildings that we build. And they are experts in all the different products that I just mentioned. And then we have a development team. We have 27 developers whose job it is to be the quarterback for these projects. So they go out and they find the property that we develop 
and they take uh, they take the projects through the city to make sure that they get approved by the city, and then they are also responsible uh, for working with others within our company to find the joint venture partners. In, in the case of joint venture partners, who all come together. So think of Opus as a we call it vertically integrated, meaning we have all these disciplines within one company. We're architects and engineers, we're a construction company, and we're a development company all rolled into one. And it's a very unique structure that not many companies have. In fact, our founder, Jerry Roundhorse, really was a pioneer in putting together this integrated team. So what we offer our customer is a single point of contact. You have one person that you come to to talk to about your project, and you don't have the typical situation where the architect is pointing to the contractor if there's a mistake, and the contractor is pointing to the architect. It's just one company. So when we hire people, we hire developers. Those are folks who you know go to school for real estate. They understand real estate analysis, real estate valuation, real estate development. We hire developers. We hire architects and engineers, folks who go to school and learn how to draw buildings and do land planning and those sorts of things. And then we hire the construction project managers. A lot of times they have engineering degrees and they're folks who are responsible for overseeing all of the construction aspects of a project. So that's essentially who Opus has been for the last 65 years. That's awesome. And I'm going to ask you a selfish question now because, you know, you just brought up that you did a project in Minneapolis for $150 million. Where in the world do you even start on a project that big? Because I think to a lot of us, diving into a project with numbers that large, it's flabbergasting to a lot of us. Well, it's, you know, like I said, I've been doing this for 40 years, and that is, you know, that's one of our larger projects. We also developed the Best Buy headquarters, which was about the same size project back, you know, 15 years ago. And and we also did the U.S. Bank Tower, which is now called Capella Tower. And, you know, those are those are monster projects and they are complicated and they and they do take a lot of integrated teamwork. But it really starts with the developer identifying an opportunity. So in the case of the 365 apartment project, our developers looked at the opportunity for us to deliver a high-rise luxury product. And we'd also developed a project before that called the Nick on Fifth, which is right next door to 365 Nicollet. And, and that was the first high-rise luxury apartment built in 30 years. So we, we were taking a risk that the market was ready to pay, essentially, you know, rents that hadn't been achieved in this market before, you know, New York type of rents. But we, we felt that there was a market opportunity for that. So it starts with the developers doing all of their research, looking into, you know, all of the market metrics, the types of buildings that have been built, the rent that people are paying, and, and putting together the business case for a project of that kind. So the developers usually are the tip of the spear sourcing big projects like that. And once they've identified the opportunity, then they quickly pull together the team that includes an architect and a construction project manager. And together, the three of them start to map out what could be built on a site like that. So that's where the developer needs to go and talk to the city and find out how big of a project the city will allow and what type of project the city will allow, because you have to deal with zoning and land use issues in every project that you do. So that's really the genesis of how it starts, Bobby, is the developer identifies a market opportunity, pulls together an architect and a project manager, Together, they create the early vision of what could be built on a site. They put together what's called a pro forma, which is the financial analysis, because anybody can build a beautiful, expensive office building, but then you got to make sure that the rent you're going to get on that building is a market return. So you've got to make sure that once you build this awesome 30-story apartment building, that there are going to be people there paying you the rent that you need to get for that type of project. Yeah. But that's the early genesis of how big projects like that get started. And then once you prove out that there's a viable business plan, then you have to go talk to, you know, your financial partners, you've got to get your equity lined up and you've got to get your debt lined up. So 
I can dumb it way down to a single family home. You know, I mean, it's not a lot different than when you're building a home. You find a piece of land, you get an architect, you get a builder, and you figure out what it's going to cost, and you go figure out where you're going to get your down payment, and then uh, figure out who your lender is going to be. It's no different, except it's just supersized, and it's buying a house on steroids when you do a project that big. That's fascinating. It really is. You brought up how Opus, you know, we're kind of in some rough waters at the time. Yeah. Was it when you took over as CEO? Well, I was with, I was, yeah, no, I was with Opus. So the, the recession hit in 2009 and 10. And I was with Opus up until 2009. And so when the recession hit, like I said, a lot of a lot of markets just collapsed. I mean, the beginning of the recession was really when Lehman Brothers collapsed and that shut down a lot of the capital sources that a lot of companies had available to them. And so, I mean, thankfully we survived, but like I said, we were, we were beat up pretty good. We had to uh, restructure the organization in uh, a number of different ways. So I, I had left Opus in 2009 when they were going through a restructure. And I went out and started another development company for another developer in town while Opus was restructuring their organization. So I wasn't part of the restructure, but I was part of the new Opus, if you will. So uh, when the folks here at Opus started to um, figure out a way to uh, keep parts of the organization intact, they came to me then and said, okay, we have a plan and we'd like you to be the leader of that plan. So I left in June of 09 and I came back in May of 2010. And by that time, yeah, by that time, you know, they were out of the restructuring and then they said, okay, Tim, you take over. And so that's when I put together the vision and the mission for Opus. And we worked on a five-year strategic plan and came up with the game plan for how we were going to execute as new Opus. So, you know, when I looked up your name, I just saw a ton of articles on how Tim sues Opus. And, you know, I have to say, I haven't necessarily seen a whole lot of executives sue a company that they go on to run within like a year. Yeah. So when Opus was going through the restructure, when I left in 2009, I left on my own and we put together a severance agreement basically that had them paying me out over 10 years. And in 2010, they defaulted on the payment. And so what I essentially did just to enhance my legal position in case they went bankrupt was I filed the lawsuit as a a breach of the contract. So it was really, you know, to make sure from from a legal perspective, in the event they went through bankruptcy, I was in a better position. And obviously, that didn't happen and everything worked out in the end. And I come from a family of attorneys. I guess we didn't talk about that. My dad is a former trial attorney, my great uncle and my great and my grandfather. So I had the family discount at the law firm, if you will. <laughs> Does that, when you did do that, is that something that people just understand or are there hard feelings? Like, are there people within the company when you take over, they're like, hey, this is a guy that formed a lawsuit like no i don't think so because you know they they got it in fact i had conversations with some of the folks at opus you know prior to the lawsuit i said look i'm I'm doing this you know to make sure that from a legal position i'm in a priority position without getting like too technical on the legal side i'm not a lawyer but it enhanced my position in the event the organization went through bankruptcy so gotcha. um, there's, there's, there's a, you know, there's a whole series of things that happen if a company goes through bankruptcy and who gets paid prior to someone else. And what I was doing was just making sure that I was putting myself in the best position I could. And to be honest, the folks at Opus understood that. But yeah. the, the entity that I used to work for was one that was able to restructure as opposed to go through bankruptcy. So at the end of the day, it all worked out for everybody. Gotcha. So you brought up the new Opus essentially is focused on safety, entrepreneurship, and stewardship. I know you're a, you're a big philanthropist. You're on a ton of boards. Why is personal philanthropy so important to you? And like, I mean, even this, taking the time out of your insanely busy schedule to sit down with someone like me and really 
give advice to people that are mastering the start of business. Like, why is that so big? I, I go back to, you know, what I was taught growing up, which was just sort of the basic principle that if someone's in need and you can help them, you ought to do that. You know, so I look back to being raised the oldest of seven kids and you know, kind of making sure that you help people if they need it or you give back to people, if you will, when you're in a better position. And that goes back also to the core of the culture at Opus when I came here. Jerry Roundhorse and the Roundhorse family is very well known for their philanthropic efforts and always has been, even, even during the hard times. So for me, coming from a family that, you know, I was raised that way and then working for a company that had those same values and that same culture was really part of why I wanted to work here. It really does come down to, you know, if we're blessed or we've had good fortune, we've been successful in business, we should give back to those who are not as fortunate and who aren't able to take care of themselves. So for me, I do that personally. And I also get involved with boards to do that. I'm on the board of the Opus Foundation. And we're a foundation that is an $80 million foundation that was started by Jerry. And we give back to all the communities where we do business. And so that's just, to me, that's just in our DNA. That's who we are. When it comes to talking with guys like you and, and giving out advice, I remember when I was 21 and I didn't know necessarily that I wanted to get in the development business. And, and I said to myself, if I can ever add value to anyone's career path or give them guidance, I would do that because the development business kind of found me. I was offered a job by another developer when I was 21 before I worked at Opus and I fell in love with it. You know, it was just, it was just like, wow, this is this whole new world. So I made a commitment at that time that if I ever could help people sort of figure out a career within my industry, I would do that. And so mentoring is a huge part of what I think we have to do as leaders. I grew up in a business with a lot of great mentors, people that took the time to show me how to do it the right way and taught me the right way to do business. And I, I do that now with my kids. You know, my kids are 33 and 36, and they're both commercial real estate executives. One works here. My son works here at Opus and my daughter works for a, a well-known firm in downtown Minneapolis. So helping people kind of sort their way through. If they show any interest in our business, I love to help steer them. So hopefully some of your listeners will uh, hear some of my story and get a spark to take a look at our industry because it's a, it's a fun business. That's, that's super awesome. And I have to ask, when it comes to philanthropy or really this mentorship role that you play, is that something that people that are entering the business world need to wait to do? Like, do they need to develop their careers first and actually have that placeholder that they can use as a way to mentor and give? Or is it something that they should develop early? You know, I think you, you're a mentor as soon as you've developed a skill set that you feel can be passed on to someone else. And I don't think it needs to be a 40-year career like mine. I think once you're able to sort of figure out a path, isn't it rewarding to help people follow that path as opposed to making them blaze their own trail? If you found a way to uh, be successful and it's worked for you, I just can't understand how people don't want to share that success with others, you know, and, and say, hey, watch out for this or, you know, look for this. This is the way I got there. I think it's just all part of helping out people who maybe don't have as clear a vision. Yeah. And I, I completely agree. I think that's huge. And the last thing kind of on this philanthropy view, what is the tie Opus has to the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota? Oh, well, I mean, Jerry was a graduate of St. Thomas and, and one of his you know, favorite, Jerry Roundhorst, and, and one of his um, fav favorite institutions. For me, both St. Thomas Academy and the University of St. Thomas are important because they help shape who I am as a leader. So for me personally, that's there. But for Jerry, you know, obviously he was a graduate and it was a huge part of his life. And, and Opus and Jerry and the family have done a lot for the University of St. Thomas. So for me, you know, they're both institutions that have a long history of graduates and alumni who've gone on to lead great companies, great businesses, great organizations. They also emphasize those same core values that we emphasize at Opus. 
going back to integrity and respect. So, mm. um, no, I'm on the board of St. Thomas Academy at my high school, and I'm also on the um, real estate advisory board for the University of St. Thomas. So, again, it's just kind of giving back to those organizations that were um, helpful for me. Really cool. Now we're going to uh, jump back into the old world of business quick. And I have to ask, what excites you about commercial real estate? Why do you love it? Well, it's fast moving. It's got a risk component to it that is exhilarating. But also you got you to gotta realize that it's, it's like downhill skiing on a double black. You got to make sure you take the right line. You know, it's exciting. It's fun. It can hurt you or it can kill you. But it's that sense of completion or that sense of accomplishment when you take a site that's just a vacant piece of property or you take an old building and you put a team together and you create something unique or something timeless and, and it provides so much to the community. It provides, you know, the physical structure for whoever you built for, whether it's an office building, a shopping center, or an apartment building. It serves a purpose for the occupant. It provides a tax base for the community that you're in, and it becomes a community asset. So, you know, I've had the good fortune in my career here to work on projects that a lot of people know. The Best Buy corporate headquarters was a project that I was the lead developer on, and I'm pretty sure most of your listeners have driven by it on 494 and 35W. Well, that was 68 single-family post-World War II small homes. It was two car dealerships and some old industrial buildings. And we acquired that over the course of two years and designed and built one of the largest corporate campuses in the upper Midwest. And so for me, that sense of excitement and risk in working on you know, unique projects is what gets the juices flowing. And then the sense of accomplishment when you've successfully completed that. There was another major development project that for me was kind of a career project. It was 10 years in the making and it was five different phases of development. It's called Arbor Lakes and it's two and a half million square feet of various types of retail up in Maple Grove. Well, that started out just as one shopping center and then it was so successful. We did a phase two and a phase three and a phase four. And you get done with something like that and you look back on it and you go, wow, a lot of moving parts, a lot of moving pieces. It never gets boring. I mean, every day is a different day when you're working in our business, uh, whether it's a big project like that or a, you know, a single retail building of 10,000 square feet in Woodbury. There's a lot of intricate parts of what we do. It's a lot of, it's not brain surgery, but it is, it does require discipline and organization and a, and a sense of being able to make decisions quickly and decisively. And sometimes you got to make those decisions when you don't have all the pieces of the puzzle figured out, you know? So, yeah. And you know, you just said it's not brain surgery by any means, but I think people may not realize that commercial real estate is so much more than a building. And like, you kind of touched on that there, but with Opus's mission, to empower other company missions through the buildings you deliver. How do you guys form the relationship with a company? How do those conversations go so you actually understand what kind of culture they have so you design a building that fits them and improves their yep. business? No, that's a great question. Um, we've, you know, in our 65-year history, we've built about 2,900 buildings, almost 300 million square feet. So it's an incredible book of business that we can look back on. And so we can look at just this huge book of work that we've done and we can, we can bring that to our clients. And so, again, when, it, when we're talking about the Best Buy corporate headquarters, we competed with other builders and developers in the area and we were successful in, in being selected by Best Buy. But we sat down and we listened to them first and foremost with their executive team, we listened to them about what was important to them and, and what they wanted to see for their building. And so buildings are sometimes custom fit to a business, and we call that a build to suit. So we literally customize the building for what they need, as opposed to just building a building without any tenants and then having tenants show up and lease it. 
a build-a-suit is what Best Buy was. So we sat down and said, tell us everything that's important to you about what you want in a building. And, you know, we spent a lot of time listening to them talk about how it was important for their employees to be able to casually run into each other throughout the day. And they wanted to have a common area where they could all get together. And they wanted to have a site that was, you know, visible from the freeway and accessible to transit. So you spend a lot of time up front with the client listening to what is important to them. When it came time to create an image, Best Buy said, hey, we don't want a flashy glass office building because that's not who we are. We're a mid-priced retailer and our consumers don't want to see us in a building that costs $500 a square foot to build. In fact, we want a budget of $65 a square foot. So, so you, you, you have those discussions with the client early on. And then when you have a company like we do, where we can literally show them 300 office buildings that are priced at a certain level, it kind of flows from there. So it starts out with our team, the architects, the engineers, the developers, sitting down with the client, hearing what they're trying to do with their needs, and then responding to that with different options and different schematics that um, they can take a look at. And, and we've done that for major corporations here in town, including U.S. Bank, Medtronic, Best Buy, Ameriprise. And each one has a little bit, something a little bit different, you know, it's, yeah. it's their image for sure, but it really is unique. And so our mission statement really talks about how buildings are much, much more than just bricks and mortar. The U.S. Bank Tower, which is now called Capella, is one of the most iconic architectural buildings in downtown Minneapolis. Everybody knows it because it's got the halo on top. Mm-hmm. You know? and, and so when, when that was developed, that was important to the client 25 years ago. Today, those towers are not as tall. They're smaller. They're a little more conservative. But that's just the change in the market over the last 25, 30 years. Yeah, and that's so cool. And off of what you were just saying, you bring up the Best Buy project a lot because, well, that building's awesome and it's enormous. Yeah. Uh, what, what was the biggest challenge with a project that big? What do you guys run into that are just huge headaches? Well, that one was like a PhD in development because we had to, like I said, we had to acquire 68 individual private homes. We had to buy two car dealerships, one dealer ships uh, we came to an agreement with on a price the other dealership didn't want to sell at any number and so we had to use a controversial method of acquiring the property that's called eminent domain where the city acquires the property and then we have a public purpose which is a corporate headquarters the the seller of one dealership didn't seem to agree with that so he fought it all the way to the supreme court and the supreme court ruled in favor of the city of Richfield saying that they could use eminent domain to acquire the car dealership because there was a public purpose in building a corporate headquarters. Now, that's still a controversial issue to some, but the Best Buy project definitely put a light on eminent domain in the state of Minnesota. So the biggest challenge by far at the beginning was acquiring all the property and then fighting off the lawsuits that were being filed against the project by the car dealership. But then once all of that was cleared and we prevailed, that was four separate office buildings, each of 250,000 square feet, you know, so it's uh, actually 300,000 square feet, a big, big development that took almost, you know, two years to build. And if you remember going by, there were, you know, six tower cranes and all sorts of stuff going on there. And we actually had to rebuild the Penn Avenue interchange. So there was a brand new interchange that had to go in. So we had to deal with not only local government officials, but we actually had to deal with MnDOT officials and we had to deal with federal highway administration because it was, it was an interstate. So you have, all of the, you have all of the challenges associated with acquiring the property and getting it approved. And then all of the challenges associated with building the actual buildings on the site. But then we also had to coordinate and make sure that the freeway interchange was rebuilt in time for Best Buy's occupancy. So a lot of things had to line up and and they did. And then on top of that, while we were doing all that, we were getting, the city was getting sued by the uh, car dealership. So 
it all worked out, but there, you know, there were a few sleepless nights for a lot of us. Uh, <laughs> I just can't even imagine. I didn't even realize you guys dealt with all of the roads and the just, I, I, it's so much stuff. It's insane. I don't know how you organize that. Well, when you big, when you develop big projects and, and, and we're talking about monster sized projects here. I mean, when we do a, a small industrial building in Egan, we don't necessarily have to build additional roads, but when you do big projects like Best Buy's corporate headquarters or Arbor Lakes, I also led the development of a big project in Woodbury called Woodbury Lakes back in the mid 2000s. When you add big projects that create additional traffic, there's usually additional road work that needs to get built. And so we call that offsite construction. It's not on the site itself, it's offsite. So roads and ponds, all those things uh, need to be looked at when you're doing um, major developments because they have an impact to traffic and to the surrounding area. So when you take on like a huge project like Best Buy, do you bid out the entire thing before they're going to hire you guys? That's a great question. And one of the things we're able to do is give our clients an early estimate of what the cost may be. And again, I'll go back to, we were talking a little bit earlier about, it's not a lot different than when you're buying a house. You know, mm-hmm. If you've got a piece of property and you want to build something on it, you go to a builder and they give you some rough estimates. Now, when you get your architectural drawings done, then they give you a firm price. But Early on, we gave Best Buy a range of what that project would cost. And then as time went on, yes, you, you bid everything out. And then you hope that the numbers that you gave them early on are close to what you, what you told the client early on. I mean, that's your whole credibility. You know? And that's, that's why we've been around for 65 years, because we know this business and, and we're able to provide early pricing for our customers. We can, we can, we can give them a ballpark, you know? whether it's a $5 million project or a $150 million project. So if it's a $150 million project, like how much time does it take to form that estimate? You can put together a rough estimate in a matter of weeks. Really? Yep. Yep. Based on drawings. I mean, well, depending upon when you start. So, so you've got to have some sort of drawing. So that's where the Opus, you know, vertically integrated, integrated team comes in as really a, a key differentiator. So our architects and our engineers lay out a project like Best Buy. Then our project managers sit down and based upon the history of building, you know, 3,000 buildings, they can say, well, we, we built a building like this two years ago, or we built three buildings like this, or five or 10. I mean, in our case, we literally had 200 buildings that we had built similarly to the building that eventually became the Best Buy headquarters. So we could take historical pricing and extrapolate those numbers and add inflation to the pricing exercise. And, and, and so once our project managers have drawings to look at, and we call those schematic drawings, there's, there's three different stages, the schematic drawings, the design development drawings, and then the working drawings. Well, as you can imagine, schematic is what it sounds like. It's not as detailed. It doesn't necessarily show how many parking stalls are on the project or how many trees there are, but it gives you enough for you to put a preliminary price together for your client. And like I said, that preliminary pricing can be done in a matter of a few weeks. The actual hard bidding takes months. So. Gotcha. So it's the hard bidding that takes a lot right. longer. Right. Okay. So before we hop into the quick fire questions that we ask everyone, the last question I'm going to ask you selfishly, because I'm fascinated in commercial real estate. Yeah. What do you think the current trends are right now in commercial real estate? Where are things headed? What's important? Well, I mean, that's a big, big topic. Right now, you know, we're, we're developing 2,000 apartment units. The apartment market is still continuing to defy a lot of people's expectations, meaning in the Twin Cities, our vacancy rate is still below 4%. And we have incredible metrics going on right now where we still have baby boomers and millennials driving the apartment side of development. So we're, we're probably late in the cycle, but apartment development is still very active. Industrial development is on fire. Right now, e-commerce is disrupting a lot of business. So you know what it's doing to the retailers. The ones that can't adapt are filing bankruptcy. But what it's, what it's doing to the industrial 
side of things is companies like Amazon, Target, Costco, they're, they're developing huge distribution centers so that they can accommodate all of their e-commerce and their next day delivery. So there are a lot of industrial development that's occurring right now. So apartments and industrial are the hottest products. Retail, which is shopping centers, that's probably the most challenged. We've seen especially mall developers really struggle with backfilling department store vacancies. And we've seen power center owners struggle with backfilling power center tenants. So when, you know, Office Max and others shut down their stores, it, it's hard to reposition those. So those are the challenging pieces of real estate. Senior housing is just taking off. I mean, the, the baby boomers haven't even really started to retire yet. And senior housing is going to be very active for the next 15 to 20 years. And then office space in our markets has been a little bit slower. It's been, it's been more active on the East and West Coast, but candidly, in this last cycle, there were plenty of office buildings that were built. And so you and I were talking a little bit about WeWorks earlier. In the office sector, WeWorks is a great example of an innovative office space concept that offers that flexibility to small businesses who don't want or they can't afford class A space on a five to 10 year lease. So that's a disruptive, innovative concept. Whether it's going to be successful long term remains to be seen. And WeWorks is in the news now. So we'll, we'll see in a month, we'll see where they're at or in six months. But it's a unique concept, right? That co-locating space concept is in its current form new to the market. We had it back in the 80s with other companies that aren't around anymore, but the WeWork thing took a different approach. So that's, that's pretty new and, and in vogue with office space. You know, the other thing that I'll, I'll say that continues to be important is LEED certification or green energy efficient buildings are still very, very popular today. Buildings that are LEED certified, they can get different levels of certification, bronze, silver, gold, and platinum. And as you can imagine, what that means is it's, it's that level of certification has to do with the level of energy efficiency that you have. But that's important today. Uh, most of the buildings we're doing have some sort of green LEED certified component to it. That continues to be uh, important to companies that we design and build buildings for. That's super fascinating. I could legitimately talk about commercial real estate all day and really get into the nitty gritty, but there'd probably be people that would get a little bored after 12 straight hours of us talking about this. <laughs> um, so we'll just hop into the quick fire and geez, people must get so annoyed at me calling it quick fire and then explaining to the guests that they don't have to be quick. But the first question, it's a random question from our audience. And Someone out there asked, what would the closest person in your life say if they asked him or her, what is one characteristic that they totally dig about you? And what is one thing that drives them insane about you? <laughs> I'm, uh, you know what? I'm, I'm passionate about everything I do. I mean, I love this business. So I'm, I'm high energy. I'm the same way with, you know, water skiing and down, downhill skiing. So if I do it, I, I, I do it big, and, and, I, and I really enjoy that excitement of my career and, and my pastime. So I, I think they would say I'm high energy with a lot of passion. Fair enough. What is the thing that would drive them insane? Is it the same thing? Uh, no, I'm impatient. Yeah, that can be a virtue in our business, because if you wait around too long, things can pass you by, but it can also be a curse. So yeah, no, I'm I have I have a couple of little sayings on my desk that I read every once in a while to remind me how being impatient can uh, can be a real pain in the rear. But yeah, interesting. Do you have either of those sayings in front of you? Yeah, actually, it's a horoscope. I'm an Aries, and so it says people have different paces, and those with a slower pace than yours (parentheses most people) will trigger impatience. The biggest challenge of the day will be keeping impatience in check. <laughs> Mm. See, I'm happy you read that because I, I'm definitely someone that has a real problem with patience as well. Yeah. And I think, I think for some of us, I mean, I don't run businesses that are enormous like you, but I have learned just in the startup world, we kind of run at our own speed and we just want things so badly and get so excited that we can't understand why everyone else isn't feeling the same way in the room. Yeah. <laughs> so that's yeah that's the other, the other, here's your other one you can have 
I, I have no pride in authorship. This is the other one I have at my desk. You'll decide quickly and execute just as fast. This is the kind of behavior that makes some people fall in love with you. Others want to hire you and still others feel a little afraid of you. Mm, so I, I try, like that. I try and keep, uh, I try and keep the impatience in check. I love that. Big fan, big fan. Okay. So these last three questions, it's what we ask every guest. And this is really for all of our, our audience members just jumping into the world of business. So what skills does a young professional need to have straight out of college? I'm a big believer in that emotional intelligence is equally as important and even sometimes more important than what you learn in school. Obviously, depending upon your career, your learning in college is absolutely critical and awesome. But emotional intelligence is something that is more important now, I think, than ever. We, we actually have a lot of our leaders go through emotional intelligence training, and uh, it's really been helpful for us and, and helpful for me even in my career growing up so i think i think that's something that no matter what you choose as your career it's good for you to get in touch with you know where you are in the uh, in the scale on emotional intelligence and i'd like to just dive a little deeper for one quick moment could you give me a situation where high emotional intelligence would come into play and be really valuable i think understanding who you're dealing with and understanding personalities, we're all so different. And not every style of getting to the conclusion is necessarily going to work in every situation. And for me, I've learned to be much more empathetic and much more understanding of people's different process. So people like me are expressive and extroverted, but not everybody is like that. If you're not aware, of your surroundings and are aware of the people who are on your team and their way of getting to the end goal, that can be disruptive because you're going to thwart their efforts and sometimes derail the process. So I think just understanding everyone's emotional intelligence and understanding their personal way of dealing with situations and having empathy for them is really uh, what I mean by that. So yeah, you can apply to any any situation. Um, For sure, guys like you and I who are wired with high energy and uh, a bit of impatience can steamroll people who are more slower to get to the same place, which isn't bad, and maybe want a little more information before they make a decision and or want to think about it, or they may want to go a different way. And I think when you learn how to slow down, in my case, and you take a step back and listen, that makes you a better leader. Yeah, for sure. And that empathy piece is incredibly important because I, I definitely, I think a lot of us that are a little more high strung or a little more motivated, we have a harder time adding that empathetic view into our daily leadership lives. For sure. Second question here that we ask everyone is, what do you believe needs to be sacrificed for success? Time is probably, time gets sacrificed. Uh, whether it's time with your family and friends or even alone time, I think time management is something that takes a while to balance out. I think it's crucial that you've got to figure out the right balance of personal and, and professional or you'll burn out and candidly be unhappy in life. So devoting the right amount of time to all those different endeavors are important. But, but inevitably, in our career, time does get sacrificed. You know, in our business, you're at council meetings from six o'clock at night, sometimes till 12 o'clock at night, listening to somebody argue with the city about a uh, water bill. And then, you're gonna go up, then you go up and talk about a $20 million development at 1130 at night. And so you, you, you take time away from your family, but it's got to be done. That's part of our job. But then you balance it out by um, taking a Friday afternoon off and going to the cabin. Mm-hmm. That, that's the sacrifice and, and the balance that you need to find in your personal and professional life. That's awesome. Last question here, Tim, and I'll let you go. What is one life hack a student of business should apply to their life this week? This probably goes to the time management thing. Read all of your business reports, newspapers, and trade journals. Do it all before 7.30 in the morning. Hmm. Get it all done. 
you want to know what's going on in the world. And I showed, showed my age by calling it newspapers. Do it online. <laughs> but seriously, get all of the current news, however you get it, whether it is online or through the old school newspapers and trade journals, get it all read before 7.30 because when the phone starts ringing, your day is off and running. And so I, I get into the office at 6.30 or 7 and just read everything uh, I can that's current for the day. And then I feel like I've set the table for the rest of the day. That's awesome. I love it. Well, Tim, thanks for working with us with all the mic problems. And we really appreciate your time. It was a blast. Thanks, Bobby. I enjoyed it. Appreciate it. Bobby with you one more time here before I let you go. Just wanted to give another big shout out to Tim. Thank you, Tim, for joining us on the Master of the Start podcast. I felt honored to talk to someone so incredibly, really good at his craft, like an absolute beast. I was really blown away by that Best Buy story. I had no idea how a large structure like the Best Buy Corporation was built from start to finish. And that just blew my mind. And I hope that kind of blew your mind too. We are in season two, as we mentioned at the beginning, and season two will be a little different. So at the moment, you know, we're not giving you any tips at the end, but we might be adding that in as we go. We will also be adding in other ways for you to check out the content. But for now, we're really just focused on the podcast. So check us out and subscribe, like us on iTunes, Spotify, iHeart, all those great, great platforms. And we're just so thankful for you being here with us today. So thank you very much. And we will see you next week in episode two.